Hello and welcome to Beer Prime. Every episode I talk to somebody in the craft beer world while we drink a few beers as well as some other features about what's going on in beer and what great beers I've been having recently. This episode features special guest Robert Wicks, owner and head brewer of Kent-based Westerham Brewery. Robert will be joining me later after we've had some beer news. Looking around this week for some beer stories, I didn't find a great deal. Of course, there's lots of breweries announcing new beers being released, and that's amazing. In fact, there are some fantastic looking beers coming in the next few weeks. So instead, I thought I would concentrate on some subscription boxes that you can get. Now, I'm not talking about the likes of Beer 52 or Honest Brew or Flavorly. I'm talking about those that you can get directly from the breweries or independent craft beer stores. Now some brewers have been doing their own direct boxes for some time now. Northern Monks Patron Society now has four levels of membership. But it's great that recently I've seen so many other breweries doing that too. Brew York have started up a box and I've also seen Thornbridge and Duration Brewing start recently. And I think Brew by Numbers have been doing one for a few months now. And not to forget those independent bottle shops getting in on this too, such as Hot Burns and Black, Craft Metropolis and Craft Bar. And while we're talking about boxes, with Christmas coming up, I only have three words to say. Beer Advent Calendar. Now look out over the next few weeks, as I'm sure there will be many more announced. But so far, I've seen ones from Mikella, Brewdog, De Morschlutel, the Dutch brewery, and even one from Beer Nuts which contains a whole load of beers, plus a few packs of their snacks and some socks. Then of course, there's today's guest, Western Brewery, whose pack of 24 certified gluten-free beers includes Careful With That Axe Eugene, which is a beer you'll hear more about when I talk with Robert shortly. And the craft beer bottle shops, such as A Hoppy Place in Windsor, South London's Hot Burns and Black, and their South London neighbors, Craft Metropolis, York's legendary House of the Trembling Madness, West Midlands craft beer shop Coffee and Cask, Be More Local in Penryn Bay, North Wales, and my good friends at Hopstop in Oxted and Rygate, Surrey. So keep your eyes open for those, and you could be cracking into one of those advent calendar boxes on the 1st of December. So now let's welcome my guest for this episode, Robert Wicks from Western Brewery. Hello, Robert. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Good. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. So we're starting with Hop Rocket. It's a yes. session IPA, 4.3%. Correct. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a session IPA. We started with, um, producing Hop Rocket many years ago, and it was actually a five-hopped English IPA. And um, we decided, actually, that with a name like Hop Rocket, really we wanted something a little bit more out there, a little bit more West Coast style, but in the session IPA strain. So we kind of killed off the beer and then brought it back uh, last year on the 50th anniversary of the launch of the Apollo uh, moon landing mission. Right. Okay. And very aptly, it's absolutely packed with US hops. Yes. Um, and a lot of those are quite apt as well in their names, <laughs> of course. Which yeah, we... but also we pick them for the balance that they have and certain hops that we really, really love. 
Um, but obviously, uh, when you're making a beer like uh, Hot Rocket, you've got to launch it with Apollo. So yeah. the first hop into the copper is Apollo. <laughs> but you've also, of course, got uh, Chinook, Columbus, Centennial, Comet, yep. Amarillo, Simcoe, and Citra. Yeah, so the Amarillo, uh, the, the Citra, and the Simcoe are uh, dry hops. The other ones are hops that are in the copper um, at the end of the boil to provide that body and that complexity of flavor because we've discovered over the years that having um, hops that, you know, a blend of hops uh, does provide, you know, a real backbone of flavor, um, also mouthfeel and complexity to the hop aromas. Otherwise, it can all be a bit one-dimensional. Right, okay, fantastic. Well, I mean, it's, it's a, a very clean and crisp, very citrusy and piney, which I know is what you're aiming for. Um, you were telling me that it was uh, in homage to another great IPA that you, you very much rate highly. Yeah, so the grist um, that we use for this is exactly the same grist as it goes into Odell IPA. So a few years ago, back in 2015, we made a, uh, a version of our bulldog called American Bulldog. It was to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the death of Winston Churchill. And we went over to um, Colorado to produce this beer. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great fun um, meeting Doug and brewing with him. And I've been back to the uh, brewery uh, twice since then, actually, to meet them. And I was talking to the head brewer and I said, look, I absolutely love your IPA. It's very much a, more of an English style grist than an American style grist. And I said, I'd love to um, really pay homage to your beer and do a hot rocket uh, with that grist. So they gave us the grist, so it's a secret. <laughs> and then the, but the hops are completely different and uh, to Odell IPA. But uh, it's, uh, it's a probably a maltier, uh, more amber-coloured uh, session IPA than you might see maybe yeah. from some of the other breweries. Um, uh, on keg, it has a, a little bit more of a hop haze. We lightly filter it in cans. Um, but uh, really, we're just wanting to pack lots of flavour into a 4.5% beer. Absolutely. And you are getting a hell of a lot of flavour there. Um, and I know that's something that you're quite uh, keen on um, and packing lots of flavor into uh, low ABV beers. This actually leads, links into a question that we've had from one of the listeners. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll, I'll read the, the full question out for everybody. Um, it's from Tori Powell. Um, and she says she was looking around at the About Us section on your website. Um, and she saw on the mission statements that one of your missions was to educate visitors about the risks of alcohol abuse and to promote a culture of moderation. Yes. So she was very interested to hear more about that and how you actively promote it. And also what inspired you to do that? She believes it's quite unique in, in that many breweries don't promote that. Well, I think in terms of so packing lots of flavor into low strength beers is about producing beers that are both sessionable, um, but are not so strong that uh, um, you, you can overdo it. And we are aware that there are the health, health benefits associated with moderate beer consumption. And so we do talk to people about uh, drinking moderately and that this is not about, you know, saving up all your units to drink them on, you know, Thursday and Friday night and, and drinking poor beer, actually. I mean, there's nothing worse than drinking bad beer. And I think it's really important that we uh, also, uh, you know, educate people that a little bit of really good beer is a lot better than lots of really bad beer. And I think that's really where it all fits into. So we, 
um, we do do one or two relatively high strength beers, but um, we don't do anything in the really epic sort of 10 and a half percent, not to say we wouldn't ever do it, yeah. but it isn't really our style. So we're looking for sessionable beers, um, but really one that you're going to have a couple with friends and enjoy yourselves and kind of not get completely uh, bladdered or whatever it is you want to, <laughs> word you want to use to describe it. So I think that's really yeah. what it's about. And I think that's, to be honest, that is also now fed through into a lot of, like our friends at Colonel, that one of their best-selling beers is a table beer. Yes. And there is no reason why low strength should also mean low flavor. And so I guess we were relatively early onto that discussion. I would say we're still quite keen to produce a table beer. We had a table beer uh, on cast called Finchcock's Original. It was a 3.5% beer. And uh, unfortunately, we had to stop making it because it just simply uh, wasn't selling enough in pubs because uh, um, I think we were going through that period when everybody was starting to drink stronger and stronger beers. And now it started to come back the other way. And when I visit the States, the days of everything being over six and a half percent has changed. And um, Ballast Point Brewery that I was uh, at um, uh, late last year, you know, they've now got a lot of lower, much lower strength beers than I'm used to seeing in the United States. And so I think things are changing and people are coming back down once again to, mm. to not so much alcohol because it's not really the alcohol, it's the pleasure of the drinking that we're really interested in. We are, after yeah. all, in the pleasure business and uh, we're there to provide pleasure and not pain. No, absolutely. I mean, I like a, a, an Imperial Stout, uh, like the, the rest, the best of them, but you just you can't drink that many of them in in one sitting at all but you know it would just no. be just a nightmare so as you say having a lot of good quality but lower abv beers means that you can have a, a better session yeah so that's i think that's the reason that's the, that's really behind that part of our mission statement okay great thanks for answering that so um tell me a little bit about the history of the brewery well, we started uh, the brewery in 2004 on a, on a farm, on a National Trust farm. Um, and fairly soon after that, we were contacted by the National Trust actually about having a discussion about their only hop garden. So uh, Kent, as you know, is one of the uh, counties along with Worcestershire and Herefordshire that are the most famous for growing hops. Yeah. And also breeding hops. And uh, we work very closely with Dr. Peter Darby at Y Hops, who has also been involved in the um, creation of new hop varieties uh, to ensure that sort of hops in Kent uh, and elsewhere in the UK continue to, to grow. So that's really why we got to, decided to start brewing. I've been brewing since I was eight. Um, wow. My godfather was Dick Theakston from the famous Theakston's Brewing family. Okay. And I started brewing beer uh, and spent a lot of time drinking beer with him as well. And uh, so that's kind of what really got me into it. I was originally going to study fermentation technology for my degree, but I did biochemistry instead. Uh, so it's kind of always been in my blood to do this and uh, just took a decision in 2004 to leave my previous job, which was uh, investment banking in the city, to set, set up the brewery. So we did that until 2016. And then we decided to move into this purpose-built building and we built the tap room that you can see behind me uh, if you're watching the video. And um, we now welcome a lot of people to the brewery. Uh, over the summer, we were welcoming nearly a thousand uh, people uh, over four days to the brewery for um, street food and drinking beer direct from the brewery. Right. So the business model, if you like, has changed quite substantially over the last few years um, as the market has changed. And as you know, the issues that we face getting our 
access to market for our cask and keg beers becomes more and more difficult as the national brewers lock down the business using uh, illegal business methods. Um, thankfully, I think uh, the, uh, the government and the various organizations um, uh, are starting to crack down on. And I, I would like to see um, the market reopened up once again to independently brewed beer being available widely in yeah. pubs, uh, clubs around the United Kingdom. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's very important. And you're mentioning also about the, um, the big breweries as well. Uh, well, also some, some family breweries, some, some mid-level breweries are also threatening the existence at the moment of smaller breweries like yourselves with the small brewers duty relief. Yes, I think we're, I've done a lot of work on this in the past, and I have represented the Society of Independent Brewers at the Treasury. Uh, I'm a director of the Society of Independent Brewers for the Southeast region, mm -hmm. and so I'm quite well versed with what's going on there. Um, I'm not really interested in getting into a fight with who or who is not on either side of this argument. I think what's really important is that the, um, the whole industry has been revitalized by the small craft brewers and we were probably what i would say is the second wave of craft brewers uh, in the uk that came uh, up as a result of the introduction of small brewers relief in 2002 um, and if you like the third wave is what is uh, obviously brought through a lot more of the um the brewers that only produce cake beer uh doing more unusual styles of beer and pushing the boundaries of beer which i think is great um, but uh, this has all been brought about by Small Brewers Relief, and it's there to remove the diseconomies of scale that small brewers like us have. I mean, we use as many staff to produce, uh, say, five or 6,000 hectolitres of beer in a year as a brewery that's four times the size of us uses. So in terms of employment, Small brewers are really important. They're also important for their connection to the local community. They give people a sense of place because they can come along to their local craft brewery and drink the beer. Uh, they can buy beer to take home. Um, they have that sense of, of place. And every town at some time in the past, a reasonable sized town, had their own brewery. In fact, Western in, uh, the, in, eight, in the 1890s had two breweries. Uh, had the Swan Brewery and the Black Eagle Brewery. So yeah. the, the idea that a town of what was then only about 4,000 people, it's more like 8,000 now, sorry, it's less than that, so about 2,000 people then, it's about 4,000 now, had two breweries. So, you know, we're only really recovering the number of breweries that we had um, back in, say, the, the late part of the 19th century. So I think that there's still, you know, there's still enough space for small craft breweries. And a lot of these are um, small local breweries, they don't really have huge ambitions to grow. What we found over the last 16 years is that once we get over 5,000 hectolitres, it's very difficult to become profitable. So we were keen for the Treasury to actually have a look at small brewers relief and try and reform it in some way that would reduce the cliff edge for people who do desire to grow from 5,000 to maybe 10 or 15,000 hectolitres. Because uh, at the moment, Work that we've done and our experience in talking to our colleagues elsewhere in the industry is that really you have to get about 20,000 hectolitres before you're back to the same level of bottom line profit that you're making at 5,000 hectolitres. And this is clearly wrong. Yeah. So 
we are keen to see it reformed. Unfortunately, it would appear that the Treasury have, have, bought, have caught completely the wrong end of the stick and have decided to reduce the amount of beer production you can have in order to get the maximum relief. And there's no visibility yet as what the shape of the curve will be like above 5,000 meters. Back in 2015, we were ranked in the top 13% of brewers by size because of the amount that we were producing back in 2015-16. We've actually taken an active decision to reduce our production so that we can be more profitable. And that's really about the sustainability of our business. And it has become more and more unsustainable because the price, the deflation in beer and even in the supermarkets, the premium bottled ale segment has been devalued by these regional brewers that you were talking about who are keen to see small brewers relief you know changed in some way actually what would be better if they premiumize their product uh, premiumize what is a high quality product i mean the price of a bottle of beer in 2020 is still the same price for um you know large regional brewers brands as it was you know, 16 years ago, and we started the brewing. That's mm. complete madness. I mean, you know, costs have continued to rise since then. And, you know, when they complain about a lack of profitability, maybe they should just put their prices up, is what I would say. And, uh, you know, make better beer, sell better beer, and uh, get a proper price for it, rather than blaming um, craft brewers who are packing huge amounts of flavor, expensive ingredients into their beers. And we'll talk about another beer in a minute that's got a lot of expensive ingredients in it. Mm. Um, uh, packing those into their beer. And then they complain about the fact that we're taking market share from them. So really they need to look at themselves in the mirror, look at their business uh, plan and actually change it. And uh, when it comes to the supermarkets, just tell them, sorry, you're gonna have to pay more for the beer. That's what yeah. we do. If they don't like that, we just walk away. No, absolutely. Talking about the small brewers due to relief, the, there is a petition for that, that people can sign if they want to try to uh, get that re-looked at again by the Treasury. Um, I think that is on Anspassion Hub Days. That's right. So uh, we've been promoting that, and I'm very pleased to say that Seven Oaks District is now got the third highest level of votes out of 650 constituencies in the country. Um, because of the campaigning that we've been doing to get people to sign the petition. Fantastic. Once we get above 100,000 signatures, then uh, we will be able to uh, get this, this change in policy debated in Parliament. Uh, yeah. I have a Zoom call with my uh, MP tomorrow to discuss it with her. She's very much, she's, she's a trained economist, so mm -hmm. she'll understand the numbers part of the discussion that we're having. I think it's really important that we look at this in the round. I think there has been uh, a certain amount of false data that has been circulated by some of the protagonists for the um, for review. Um, the the figures that they have given us on what it costs to produce a pint of beer for a uh, you know a small brewer are completely wrong. I mean, absolutely wrong. We've been at this game 16 years. We know what we're talking about. We've been doing it actually longer than some of the people who are on the, in the small brewers relief uh, yeah. coalition. So, you know, we know what we're talking about. We've surveyed our own members of the Society of Independent Brewers. And frankly, uh, if there's any nonsense that's going around in this discussion, it's the numbers that are being circulated by the Small Brewers Relief Duty Coalition. Yeah. Hopefully your Zoom call tomorrow goes down very well. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so if you have a chance, go onto the uh, government website and sign the petition. 
to uh, change the uh, roll back the changes to small brewers duty relief. Yeah. If cam camera members who are listening to this really value their small local brewers, they will go out there and they will sign this petition. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Good luck in that. Um, so you did talk about uh, another beer packed with ingredients. I assume that uh, you're talking about our next beer, which is yeah, called... It's a new beer. We just launched it. Careful with that axe, Eugene. Yeah, careful um, with that axe, I love the name. Eugene. That obviously comes from the Pink Floyd song. Yeah, it's a song, a uh, live recording of which is on the Umagama album. Um, to me, it's kind of fits in with the whole uh, time of the year vibe. Uh, it fits in with... Uh, it's a slightly menacing song that has uh, an interesting build-up to it, followed by a whispering of the title of the song by Roger Waters, and then this rather primordial scream that he gives out, and the whole thing um, gets quite exciting. It was also recorded live in Pompeii in, uh, I think, 1969. Wow. And uh, I was only four at the time then, so I can't honestly say I was listening to it then, but I'm a big Pink Floyd fan. A lot of people here are Pink Floyd fans. We have it regularly on our playlist here and um, always was looking for an opportunity to produce a beer, um, you know, that uh, kind of gave some credit to the fantastic music they have. And that's where Careful With, this act, careful with That Axe Eugene came from. So we were looking to make a red rye beer. Never used rye before in any of our beers. Okay. It's got a really interesting grist. So I did quite a lot of research on red rye beers, uh, talked to a few brewers in the States, uh, got some sort of indications as to the red rye beers, because when you're gonna dive in and you're gonna make 10,000 uh, bottles or cans of a, of a beer, you really need to know that it's gonna come out right. So yes. um, we did our homework, and so this beer's got a high level of um, double roasted crystal, which is a uh, crystal malt that we get from Simpsons, and this is actually, it is roasted twice and it produces the most wonderful, rich, raisiny flavors in the beer. Mm. It's also got rye malt. It's about 20% rye malt, which is quite a high level of rye malt. And then uh, about 8% red rye crystal. So that's crystallized. That's a, a um, rye that has been um, steeped. It's been allowed to uh, convert the sugars inside the rye and then it's been um, uh, kilned to then convert the sugars into uh, uh, in, into a crystal or bead of um, of rye sugar inside the bead, and that again gives a wonderful color. And then aromatic malt, aromatic malt from uh, Simpsons is like a very very dark Munich malt, and it gives it that depth of color. I mean, just look at the color on this. In fact, somebody was holding a glass of this beer up um, in the tap room earlier um, when um, well, outside when the sun was shining, and it actually shone. A sort of red orange hue onto uh, onto his arm with the sun coming through it. I think it's the, I think it's the most lush coloured beer I've ever produced. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting beer. Um, the whiskey, the rye whiskey flavours, and it's very sweet, creamy mouthfeel, and I'm getting a lot of that vanilla as well in the end. The well, we use bourbon vanilla essence uh, in there as well to give you that element of what you would mm. get in a rye whiskey. An American rye whiskey often goes... So rye whiskey in America always goes directly into uh, fresh oak casks and the vanillin that is extracted from the wood um, uh, produces that vanilla flavour in, in, in rye whiskey. 
And then we used a natural whiskey flavoring in here because we didn't want to grog the beer, which is adding actual whiskey to it because then we have to pay spirits duty. Um, so we were looking for an autumn beer, something a little bit different. Um, I have to say there are some flavors in there that have surprised the hell out of me. I never expected them. Um, yeah. So the first time I tasted when we just canned it, all I could think of initially was Vimto. Um, there's a real sort of cola nut flavor to it, which is quite unusual. And the, a little bit of cherries and raspberries. And the only thing I can think that that's come from is the interaction of the red rye crystal and the double roasted crystal, which often produces these fruity, raisiny flavors that you get in there. So there's mm. almost a sort of Venus quality to it. And on the yeah. nose, you can certainly smell the whiskey. Um, but it's, it's kind of a flavor that comes through in waves. It sort of gives you the initial taste. I haven't even tasted this yet, so let's try some. <laughs> There's sort of raspberries, slight note of raspberries and cherries. Yes. Mm. Um, which is kind of what made me think Vimto and a few other people thought that. Um, and then, I've, um, I've never had Vimto, I'm afraid, so. <laughs> ah, right. Well, it's grapes, uh, raspberries and black currants, I think, from memory. So okay. somebody else, another famous craft brewer in London, who shall remain nameless, tasted it the other day and said he thought he got sort of cola, cola nut flavours on it. And then you get the hops come through in the mid palate. So there's um, the hops we've got in here is uh, Apollo um, and then Cascade and Amarillo. So the Amarillo would tend to give you a bit more of an orangey taste to it. The Cascade, obviously a classic grapefruit Cascade note to it. And I can certainly pick up the Cascade hops in there. And then on the finish, you get that sweetness and the vanilla. Yeah. And then it kind of just lingers on and on and on. It does, absolutely. Um, you were kind enough to provide me with two cans and had the other the other day. Um, and uh, yeah, it, I could taste it for a good sort of 45 minutes after I had, I had drunk it. It really, and it was a, you know, a good aftertaste as well, because of course, you know, there's some that you don't want to be tasting 45 minutes afterwards. But no, it was a really um, a pleasant, uh, lingering flavor. Um, I actually, when I tried it yesterday, I think it came straight out of the, uh, the fridge very cold. And I let it warm up a little bit, um, and I I found I was getting a lot more of the flavour coming through um, when it had been out for a good maybe 10, 15 minutes. Um, well, temperature is a really important thing for us to talk about because um, that's kind of one of our next campaigns uh, is is temperature. And if you're interested, we can talk about that. So we keep oh. our bottle chiller here at um, six degrees, and we would tend to take our um, beer out. And again, if you're watching the video behind us. There are the uh, cast pumps here, and we actually serve all of that cast beer at eight degrees. Okay. And we serve the keg beers behind at six, mm. uh, between five and six degrees. And there's a, a reason for, some people will say, well, that's too cold. And cast mark would say that cask ale should be served at um, 12 to 14 degrees. Yeah. Um, frankly, that's what one third of the drinking population think. Two thirds of the drinking population don't want to drink cast beer because it's too warm. And actually it's not very refreshing when it's served at 12 degrees. And my own experience when I go to a pub is that I order a pint of real ale and I start drinking it and it tastes really good because it's been served at uh, 12 degrees. Get about halfway through and it's starting to fade quite badly. And by the time I get to the last two fingers in the glass, mm. uh, bit like what I've got left here in my original hot rocket. Um, I don't want to drink it. 
because it's now at 20 degrees and at 20 degrees um, real ale in particular cannot hold any carbon dioxide so it goes flat it goes flaccid it loses all of those flavors mm -hmm. and my own experience when i'm on holiday and had a pint of beer is uh i go to the bar and i ask for a pint of something else i don't want that beer again mm. so when we set up the tap room here we served and we did it at the old uh, farm brewery as well we served the beer at much lower temperatures so we put the beer into the glass comes out up, out the line at about eight by the time it's hit the glass that will already automatically put one to two degrees on the temperature and then we follow it over 20 minutes now we've actually done research we've we've tracked people in our tap room how long it takes them to drink their first pint of beer and it takes about 15 to 20 minutes when they first come in mm. and then the next one will take actually longer and after 20 minutes in the glass the beer has hit about 11 to 12 degrees yeah. what that means is the last two inches that go down your throat as you as you knock that first pint back is now at the optimum temperature for beer and all the way through the drinking of the beer the beer has got better and better for the thousands of people that we've had through the tap room we've had only three people who said why is the cast beer served so cold and we said take your pint sit down come back to me when you've got two fingers left in your glass and then we'll talk about the temperature of the beer yeah. and they come back and they go now that's the right temperature for the beer and i said and you want another pint don't you and they go yeah definitely and i go well <laughs> that's why we serve it at eight and we let it like all things that we do it's the things that, that finish on a climax that are the best and that's how we want our cast beer to be we want it to get better and better in the glass yeah yeah excellent that's a that's a good uh, a good plan. Well, you know, we just need to make sure that uh, that message gets around to all the pubs now. But <laughs> that's the that. tough thing. <laughs> our own pubs, we actually turn our chillers down and we serve the beer at about eight to nine degrees. Right. Okay. We don't get any complaints about the beer being too cold. In fact, everybody says how refreshing and how fresh it tastes, and it holds the carbon dioxide, and then it dances on your tongue and all the things that cast beer should be. And yeah. you know, we talked about Pete Brown's new new book earlier, where we were talking. Um, called craft and argument and mm. you know pete's position and i know you attended a talk that we had here at the brewery with pete brown when he yeah. talked about his new book miracle brew and you know at that talk he said you know cask is the original craft yeah and we still believe that cask is the original craft um i won't mention his name but there's a uh, a new zealand guy who lives just down the road from us and comes to the tap room periodically and he owns a, a famous New Zealand brand of beer. And when we talked to him about, you know, what's your favorite beer? He said, Summer Pearl. He said, we don't make a beer like Summer Pearl. He said, but it's my favorite beer and it's a cask beer. He said, to me, that is the epitome of the best beer. Yeah. And to us it is as well. It's our biggest selling cask beer in the summer and we can it as well. Um, but to me, cask is the pinnacle. But I'm, I've got really Catholic tastes. I want to drink all different styles of beer. And some yeah. I will like and some I will not like. But um, really, you know, in this tap room, biggest selling beer is our Hell's Bells Lager. My local uh, craft beer bar is um, Hopstop in Rygate. Yes, where we and work very closely with Hopstop and they have their yeah. shop in Oxted. Absolutely, they do, yes. Um, and uh, what I like is that they have a very varied range of, of beers on all of the other taps, but they always have Hell's Bells. And... 
that's really clever because of course there are always going to be i've got a few in my group of friends there are always going to be some people who just drink lagers so if i can take people to somewhere like hopstop and know that i've got a good selection of beer for myself and if they want a lager they can have a great lager in hell's bells and it, in addition hopefully it starts to make them think that the stuff that they're throwing down their necks the carlings the fosters and everything is a load of crap and that they can yeah. get something they can get a lager that actually tastes <laughs> that actually tastes good actually has a taste to it well to make that lager we brought over a german brewmaster called marcus lotz who ran the nidder brewery just outside frankfurt he came over in 2011 we made three beers with him we made a uh, a german weizen beer so we did a uh, a five-step mash on a German Hefeweizen beer, and we actually served it on cask. And then we made a lager with him, uh, and uh, we called it Hell's Bells. Uh, obviously, it's a bit of a play on an ACDC song, yeah. but it also tells the story of the beer. And um, at that time, we were doing these international-style beers, and we were basically saying it was a uh, you know a German beer with a Kent accent. And so we were um, producing lots of different... I think we probably did at least 15 or 18 different beers over the years of international style beers that we brewed here. We did, um, you know, Belgian triple called triple jump. Uh, we did the Hefeweizen, which was called Wisen Up. Uh, we did a Dusseldorfer Alt beer with Marcus as well. That's been hugely popular. We've, we've rebrewed that three or four times uh, on cask and that was called Alt Ego because it didn't know where it was from. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've done, we've, we've investigated all these unusual styles of beer, but always getting the best people that we can find to come and show us how to do it. Because, yeah. you know, although we think we're, you know, good brewers, we really don't know the details of how to make a really good um, uh, German Helles Lager. And so we did that on cast because really there was absolutely no access to get beer on keg. But as soon as we could get kegs uh, in, the, in the brewery, as soon as we had the right equipment to be able to do it, we started kegging it. And now Hell's Bells across the board is our biggest selling beer, both in package. And it's not the biggest selling beer in package beer, but um, the British Bulldog still outsells it in bottles. Um, but from this tap room um, and in keg, it's our, you know, our draft beer. It's the number one selling beer. Wow. We also make, a, we make the Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a German, uh, sorry, a Czech style Pilsner. Yeah. Um, and to make that in 2014, um, my son and I went on a trip to uh, the Czech Republic. It was really hard work. We went around 15 breweries and had, had to, it was miserable. We had to taste all of this beer and talk to all of these brewers about how you make Pilsner. What is a Pilsner? What makes, wow. what sets a Pilsner apart from a German Pilsner or from a Helles style lager or any other lager for that matter? Mm. And, um, we shook these guys down for all the information they could give us. And we took all of that back. And from that, we produced Bohemian Rhapsody. And that's a huge seller for us here as well. But it's a proper, super hoppy, bitter uh, Czech beer made with Schatetz hops. Uh, we don't use the German name for the hops. Uh, we use the Czech name, Schatetz, uh, otherwise known by other people as Sars. Um, and that is uh, that is that is our biggest selling uh, pilsner, and it's really really popular. Excellent. Well, the thing the things you do for your craft, Robert. You know, ha having to take that trip and and do all that tasting. I feel for you. I really do. <laughs> it's hard work. It's a, it's a tough it, life. it certainly is. It's hard work. If we talk a little bit then about ingredients, because I did also read on your website 
that you're very big on the provenance of all four of the ingredients that, that go into your beers, or the major ingredients anyway, the, the, the standard ingredients. So if we want to, to talk about that, we we'd sort of touched on it before we started recording, we'd, we'd sort of touched on it. And you told me that there was definitely a an order of importance or a preference mm-hmm. on those. So if you want to take me through those. Well, the single most important uh, ingredient that goes into the beer is, is clearly the water because it's somewhere between 92 and 96% of what you are drinking. Mm. And I find it absolutely incredible how little importance is given to the importance of, of, of water, the single most important ingredient. And it really takes us back to the history of brewing in Westrum, which has been going on for over 400 years. We know the first brewer in Westrum, uh, he passed away in, uh, in um, 1608, and we got his, still got, we got a copy of his uh, Last Will and Testament, where he bequeathed his brewing vessels to his wife, Sarah. And... Uh, 1730, they built a proper common brewer here in Westrum, and then there were two breweries in Westrum eventually. So there's been a long history of brewing. And when you ask the question, why has there been a long history of brewing in Westrum, it's all because of the water. So the water around here filters through chalk and then through the hive beds and into the upper green sand. And it's that upper green sand water that produces the best water within a train journey of London for producing pale ale. So you'll know that Burton pale ales were very famous in the 19th century and earlier um, because of the water, which has very, very high in gypsum, very high in sulfates, which lended themselves to the very high hop rate IPAs that were obviously sent to India during, uh, you know, from about sort of 1750 onwards. Mm. And so the water really is the most important ingredient. And... The brewers in Westerham have twice been taken over by breweries in London that wanted access to beers brewed with green sand water. Okay. And it's what really attracted us to building the brewery here in Westerham. It's not only because I lived just down the road, but also because of the water and the history. And we were very fortunate that the, the Brewery History Society, um, the first ever history book they wrote about a single brewery was about the old Black Eagle Brewery here in Westerham. And we're about to publish in 2021 um, a a second edition of this uh, book with now under our belt by next year, it'll be 17 years of history of brewing once again in in Uh Westerham. And in that book, it talked about the green sand aquifer water and why it was so important. And we know if you look at breweries Uh, back in the 19th century. There were breweries all the way from Guildford along the line, basically just south of the M25, and then down towards Folkestone, following pretty much the line of the M20. And this is a very thin ribbon of green sand called the Holmesdale. And all the way along there, there were breweries. At Wateringbury, there was a Whitbread brewery many, many years ago. And uh, Friary Mukes in Guildford, obviously the Black Eagle Brewery, the Crown Brewery in, in Oxted, uh, Adam Smith's Brewery in Seven Oaks, all the way along, all because of the water. And this water makes, uh, it's, it's makes really, really good pale ales. And actually, that's probably the reason why we're able to make really good lager, because we don't need to do anything to the water. We don't have to remove anything or yeah. really add very much to the water to make these pale, uh, crisp beers. And it's why Pilsen, um, was the most important place for producing Pilsner lagers. It's why um, the water in Munich, which comes from a what was an underground lake, 
and they drill down uh, hundreds of meters into this underground lake, the, the, the main breweries. I've been to the Paulana Brewery, they talk very much about the water that comes out there, and they spend a lot of their time talking about where the water comes from, mm. how important it is. And it is the single most important ingredient that goes in the beer, and it's so little attention is paid to water. Yeah. And that's why it was so important for us to, to do it. So when we built the original brewery, in uh, Crockham Hill, we contacted the local water company and we found that we were getting water from the green sand straight out the tap. When we moved here to the brewery in Westerham, where we rebuilt the new brewery in Westerham, we uh, realized that actually we were on Thames water, which did not come from a green sand aquifer. Oh. So the first job we did when we built the brewery was we drilled 90 meters down into the green sand. Um, to produce, uh, to, to access the green sand water for making beer. And yeah. we, uh, we use that to this day. Wow. So what really pleases us is Marston's have a beer called 60 deep to celebrate the fact that their, um, their borehole is 60 meters deep. And I know that Shepherd Nima are very proud of their green sand water that they have, uh, which is uh, their aquifers 30 meters deep. Well, ours is 90 meters deep. Oh. Three go. times deeper than uh, the, uh, uh, the Shepherd Neem, our friends down in Faversham. Excellent. Well, th there you go. That's the name for, the, for another beer then. So 90 Deep. 90 Deep. <laughs> Obviously, you know, water, as you say, it is a very important ingredient. I mean, you, you were saying there about what you can do, what you can brew with, with the great water that you have. I mean, some breweries spend a fortune on kit that actually strips all the minerals from the water um, so that they can actually create a blank canvas. But you've, you've actually got the, the perfect water just readily Play available. Strengths. I mean, what we have. So, what we have to do to make stouts is we actually have to add alkalinity to the water. Uh, obviously, for our New England IPA, the Nova Anglia, uh, which is currently out of stock, uh, but we, so we've got to get back and brew the Nova Anglia again. But mm. for that, we add a lot of chloride. So, we do add things to the water in order to get the uh, the right mouthfeel and the right balance on the water. Right. Um, we spend a lot of time. We have a very complex spreadsheet that. Um, so we test the water in the brewery every day and we adjust the water for the various different styles of beer, the alkalinity, because obviously different amounts of crystal malts will affect the alkalinity. And brewers have always added um, salts to their water, um, be it uh, a calcium chloride, calcium sulfate, sodium chloride, whatever it is that you're using. And yeah. we add calcium sulfate to bring the alkalinity of the water up in order to deal with the dark malts, because clearly London water is perfect for producing dark beers. That's why porters and stouts were the beers of choice in London. Yeah. So dark beers tend to produce a lot more acidity in the, uh, in the malts and therefore you need the alkalinity to balance that. And uh, you know, that's kind of the critical part of the chemistry. So water chemistry is really important. Yeah. But obviously it does then lead on to then um, the quality of the malt that you're using. And uh, we have a very close relation to the maltsters that we use. And, the next beer we're going to taste is very much about the malt mm. rather than just the hops. Um, so maybe that's a good chance because I'm getting thirsty. I don't know about yeah, you. I, I am indeed. Yeah. So the next one is, is an Imperial Pilsner called Hannah. Yeah. And um, I, I really, really enjoyed this the other day as well when I, when I had my other can. Um, and it's as everybody that, uh, that follows me on Twitter and Instagram and listens to these know, I'm primarily a dark beer guy. Um, but this, I would happily drink a few of these. And I know that 
we're now at seven point uh what is it seven point five percent seven point five percent so we're, we're now in the the realms of probably not shouldn't be drinking a few of these but i happily drink a few of these in a go it's it's just such a flavorsome pilsner um a little darker than than i would usually see a lot of pilsners but um the that's uh, because the amount of malt that went into it i mean there was yeah, a absolutely that went to it. i mean i think it's got a lovely golden color i mean you know for those who are watching the video if you just look at that, it's a lovely golden color yeah um, i mean it's not as dark as um say the uh, october uh, fest that we made last year which was a bit more amber we went for a we made an october fest called october west uh last year we made that with melissa cole and uh, that was very popular. Unfortunately, we haven't brewed it this year because we can't do the Oktoberfest because of uh, uh, the pandemic. But um, mm. we decided to do an Imperial Pilsner. And the, really, the story behind this is that um, in 1842, Joseph Groll, who was a, a brewer, um, went to the town of Pilsen and using uh, some technology that had actually been developed in England, they were able to produce some pale colored malt um, using uh, a drying system that did not make dark malt. So, you know, in the days of the uh, 19th century, uh, when malt was dried using um, uh, coal, uh, it often got burns, and that's why I finished up with the sort of brown malts that were used for making porters. Um, but in the mid 1800s, they developed the technology to use coke uh, and to control the temperature and able to make very pale malt. Yeah. And uh, so he would have used Moravian barley from the Hanna Valley. And uh, crisp maltings who supply most of our base malts went back to the original seed bank and they grew up a quantity of, uh, over, a, over a couple of years, uh, this Hanna malt. And uh, they harvested the malt last year and produced only 17 tons and we were able to secure a ton of wow. that, one ton of that 17. We thought we've only got one ton. We really need to do something very special. We don't want to just do any old uh, Czech Pilsner. Uh, we obviously already had the Bohemian Rhapsody which is a Czech Pilsner. So we thought let's make an Imperial Pilsner. Let's really make something epic out mm. of this very rare, very expensive mold. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't made a 7.5% Imperial Pilsner before, so I don't know if I made it with 21st century barley varieties, whether it would taste the same. Yeah. But I think this is one of the most flavoursome lagers I've ever made. Mm. Well, absolutely. I'm, it certainly is one of the most flavoursome lagers that I've ever tasted. It's just so... The, the malty... The, the malt that you've used is definitely coming through. It's so malty, but a nice bitterness... Um, but with a, a warm, boozy finish as well. I mean, you're definitely getting the seven and a half percent. It's there's no mistaking that it's an imperial pilsner. Um, but as I said before, it's very Moorish. I could easily uh, have have this and have another. So it's, it's it's a it's a very very nice beer. Well, you've 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 hit on what is the holy grail really for brewers is drinkability. Yeah. And um, we talked earlier about the disparity between people who are drinking cast beers. Uh, that will never touch craft beer, as you as you like to call it at the beginning of the conversation. Mm. And then there are those who will only drink craft beer, things that, um, you know, maybe in days gone by when Stone in Escondido were producing, uh, you know, epically bitter India pale ales that kind of grabbed hold of your tonsils on the way down. Mm. Um, 
they weren't terribly Moorish, they didn't have drinkability, a lot of those beers. And I think we've kind of gone from the, some of the extremes to pulling things back in. And for us, the single most important thing is drinkability. Do I want another one? I mean, at seven and a half percent, I may not want another one. But when I get to the end of the glass, do I want another one? And this comes back to what we were saying about serving temperature. It's all about flavor. Mm. And so if the flavor is really good and the flavor is exciting and, you know, we all know that the most exciting things that we do go in our mouth. And, you know, that's why we are, as we say, we're in the pleasure business. We're wanting to bring pleasure. And to me, this just, I mean, the smell of it, when I put my nose in the glass, it's got those wonderful hop aromas coming out. I mean, this has got an epic amount of hops in there. Mm. Uh, we used chatettes. Uh, um, in here for the main part of the boil. And then we used a modern hop. So this was kind of going a little bit off piste. Mm. We used a more funky modern Czech hop called Kazbek. Okay. And uh, I believe that's also added a lot of this length of flavor to it, but a huge amount of Kazbek went in at the end of the boil. Because again, there's no reason why you shouldn't treat a lager as, as a fantastic palate for showing off hops. The idea that uh, lagers just have small amounts of hops in there, they don't. I mean, you know, the Bohemian Rhapsody, it's got, got the biggest amount of hops of any of the beers that we produce goes into the Bohemian Rhapsody lager. So okay. much so, it quite often plugs up the copper. Okay, well, I mean, you know, I've got to say, as I say, I'm not, I'm not that much of a lager drinker generally, um, but I appreciate good lagers. Um, and this one is definitely one of the best I've had in a long, long time. It's oh, thank a you. very, very That's nice great. one. Thank you. And no, no worries. Um, so going on about ingredients, uh, I think you had a quite a, a, a nice story as well about the yeast that you use. So, yeah. So back in, um, I mentioned that the brewery was taken over twice. The brewery in Westerham was taken over twice, the Black Eagle Brewery, uh, by brewers in London. Originally, um, in the mid-1840s, was taken over by Robert Day and Company, who were based in Bermondsey. They were porter brewers, and they wanted an access to a brewer. And at that time, they styled themselves as Robert Porter and Company, IPA Brewers of Westerham and, and Porter Brewers of Bermondsey. Right. And I think that was really interesting that they specifically, it's actually one of the earliest references to the acronym IPA is in, a, in advertisements that Robert Day and company had about the old Black Eagle Brewery um, mm. making India Pale Ale because of the water. So they made the dark beers in London, they made the pale beers here in Westerham. Yeah. And in fact, in 1836, just before Robert Day bought the company in 1841, they extended the railway from Westerham up into London. Westerham was in fact the end of the line. And that was extended by an act of parliament for the sole purpose of the transportation of beer. They actually then had an amendment to the bill later on and allowed passengers to travel on uh, the Western line. So the Western branch line actually took beer up into London. So in 1948, Taylor Walker, who were a brewery based uh, in East London, they bought the Black Eagle Brewery um, because again, they wanted access to the expertise that the Black Eagle Brewery had in terms of brewing and they wanted access to pale beers. So a lot of the pale bitter beers for the London market were brewed in Westrum and transported up to London by train. Mm. But unfortunately, as you will be aware, if you know anything about your brewing history in the 1950s, there was a consolidation of the breweries. Yeah. In Coop, who had started off in Romford in Essex, they uh, took over Taylor Walker Brewery and in fact, the head brewer at the time, uh, or the second brewer, I'm sorry, in Westrum, was a gentleman by the name of John Fortescue. 
he went off to Romford and, and basically was the head brewer at Incoop Romford. I think he's about 89 years old and he's still around today. And he has written papers for us about how they brewed beer at the old Black Eagle Brewery that he left in the mid 1950s. So Incoop took over the brewery and in 1959, they took over 100% of Taylor Walker. And uh, at that time then, there was a distinct possibility that the Black Eagle Brewery here in Western would be closed. So Bill Wickett, who was the head brewer at the time, he took the yeast about 20 minutes down the road to the um, brewing, what is now called Brewing Research International. It's the biggest brewing laboratory in the world, just down the road from us. And there they separated the yeast into the three strains and it was put into the National Collection of Yeast Cultures. On the 3rd of March, 1965, they closed the Black Eagle Brewery for the final time as a brewery. They brewed three barrels of a special bitter ale on that day, and that was the last beer. So mm. he was very prophetic, really, six years earlier to have got rid of, uh, to taken the yeast to the, Black e to the uh, National Collection of Yeast Cultures. And so in 2003, we went to the National Collection of Yeast Cultures and we recultured the yeast from the original samples of yeast. And we brewed some homebrew samples with it and we were really excited about how it tasted. And in fact, the original card index, uh, we have copies of those original card indexes from the uh, National Collection of Yeast Cultures described it as producing a very fine ale. So we started brewing a homebrew scale, and then when we opened the brewery, we scaled it up and we started brewing with it. And to this day, all of our ales, uh, even our American pale ales and our New England IPA, because it's a very estuary yeast, it's perfect for producing nipas. Um, mm. That yeast is what we use to this day. So it's a multi-strain yeast. It's really hard to manage because uh, it's multi-strain. The only other brewery that I know of at the moment that uses a multi-strain yeast is Harvey's of, of Lewis. And I've been down and I'm good friends with Miles Jenner and I've been down there and talked to him about the yeast and they have a, a three-strain yeast down there as well. And um, this is the sort of yeast that would have naturally occurred in the brewery through the process that they had. So we have one strain that ferments the beer and then we have a second strain that conditions the beer. And mm. one thing that we're known for is having a very high level of condition in our cast beers, beers that, are, that dance on your tongue. I mean, I'm originally brought up in County Durham and uh, I know that that's the Northern style of beer is to have a big head on the beer. And, yeah. and yeah. the way they do that is they often pull it through a sparkler. Um, mm. I will tell you, I think it's the worst thing that you can do to a beer is to pull it through a sparkler. You should be creating that foam in the beer um, with the natural condition and the quality of the product, the ingredients you're using. I mean, just, I yeah. mean, uh, for those on the podcast, you can't see it. But I've still got at least a finger and a half mm. of, of foam on my lager here that uh, has gained come from it. And all the beers need to retain that head. They need to retain that condition in the beer. And this is what the second strain of yeast does. So we are able with that yeast to reproduce, you know, the same water, the same yeast as the old Blackie Brewery, many of those old flavors. And we do make a heritage range of beers which has three beers in it. Um, the double stout, which we, uh, being a dark beer guy, you'll like the double stout. Yeah. Um, and then we make the audit ale, which has probably won more awards than any other of our beer. I think it's won a gold medal every single time we've entered it into the Society of Independent Brewers beer competition for the strong ales category. And um, we also make the 1965 special bitter ale, which commemorates that beer that they brewed for the very last beer of the Black Eagle Brewery. 
Yeah. And we plan to really mess with people's heads in the next month and a half because we've never ever packaged 1965. It's a hugely popular beer. And people have said, why don't you just put it in a bottle? Uh, you know, why do you only do it on cask? Uh, it's always available. It's in our permanent lineup and has been since 2005 when we commemorated the 40th anniversary of the closure of the old brewery. Mm. Um, we're now gonna package it, but we're gonna really mess with people because we're gonna put it in a can. We're gonna make our most famous heritage beer and we're gonna put it in a can because we think that long-term going forward, cans are the right way to look after beer. They yeah. don't let any light in, they mm -hmm. don't let any oxygen in, um, they're easier to chill down so you can have a nice cold beer, even a nice cold 1965 special bitter ale. Mm. Um, so that's really the long-term future we think for packaging beer is to put it in cans rather than in bottles. Sure, also, yeah. They weigh a fraction of the weight mm. of bottles and if we are to be environmentally friendly, which is a, really one of the most important things as you'll see from our mission statement, we need to reduce the amount of packaging that we use. Yeah. And aluminium, probably 85% of the aluminium that is used in this country for tin cans is uh, recycled. Yeah. And the days have gone by when people thought that canned beer tasted metallic, it doesn't, there's BPA free liners, it's nonsense. So again, we really want to dispel a lot of nonsense that people talk out there about beer. Sure. Um, cans are great. Yeah, absolutely. I quite agree with you. I think it's, as you're saying, it's, it's a myth now that, uh, that, it, that it makes the, the beer taste odd, that tastes metallic. Nowadays, as you're saying, the, the, the packaging is so much better. Um, and I think a lot of people are moving to, to can only nowadays. I think uh, it's going to not, not going to be very long at all until it's, uh, until it's mostly cans out there. Well, I'd be really interested with your, uh, your regular uh, listeners to maybe run a poll at some point and say, you know, what do they feel about putting a traditional uh, English ale? I mean, wh why shouldn't we enjoy British Bulldog? It's our best-selling bottled beer. Why shouldn't we enjoy it out of a can? Uh, why shouldn't we enjoy it out of a cast? And again, why shouldn't we enjoy it out of a keg? Yeah. Much better that we have a pint of British Bulldog that has been put into a keg at the carbonation level of a cast beer and served really fresh mm. than a very old cast that's been sitting around for a week. The beer yeah. has gone over the top. Um, and again, I would implore all the people within camera, please let's get away from this discussion of extraneous carbon dioxide in beer. It's absolute nonsense. We're kegging our cast beers, those three cast beers you see behind us, we're, we're, we're putting that into keg at a lower carbonation level. It's been, the beer has been finished off on the yeast. It's like wine that's done Sir Lee. Um, we're finishing it off on the yeast. It's having all of that contact with the yeast. It's mm. got a carbonation level that's not fizzy like a fizzy keg beer. And then we can serve it um, out of the keg at a lower carbonation level at eight or nine degrees and it'll taste fresh and fantastic. Yeah. And we really need to get away from um, this sort of apartheid on dispense method. It should be about great beer that tastes great. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the preconceptions, isn't it? A lot of people have preconceptions about uh, the, the various different packaging or, or um, dispense methods, as you say. 
And I think if you were to, to pour four glasses of the same beer, one from a bottle, one from a can, one from a cask, one from a keg, I don't think that people could really tell the difference between the four these days. No. I think that, you know, the single most important thing we say to our pubs that serve cask beer is you need to be serving two containers per hand pump per week. I mean, there you see us pulling pints of uh, spirit of Ken behind, behind me. And um, you need to be getting through two containers. So we have a very large population of pins for uh, pubs as well. So if a pub can't get through 72 pints mm. in three and a half days, we implore them to buy our beer in pins because cast beer, when it is fresh, is, as I've said, the original craft is a thing of beauty. Um, it's something that a New Zealander coming to the United Kingdom says it's the most exciting beer that he can have here in the United Kingdom. Really, we just got to make sure that we serve it well. When it's served badly, it's awful. Yeah. I've been to pubs in London that have won camera awards trying to keep 20 different cast beers fresh on the bar. It's simply impossible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know that, you know, some organizations have talked about, well, you should have one brand on the bar that people recognize, you know, maybe a large regional brewer's beer, and then maybe a large microbrewery's beer, and, and then maybe if you have three beers, uh, you know, something from a more obscure microbrewery. I said, well, utter nonsense. I said, put the best beer that you can on the bar. And if that's your local microbrewery, you know, don't bring beer up from Cornwall to Kent. Um, bring beer from Kent to Kent. Mm. Keep the beer miles down, keep the beer fresh and, and have fresh cast beer and get through one container every three and a half days. Now, if you're a busy pub, that might be a kilderkin. Fantastic. If you can put a kilderkin of beer, 144 pints and get rid of it in three and a half days. But yeah. if you're trying to stretch a cask for a whole week, it's even really clean beer, it won't work. No, exactly. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, Totally agree in agreement with you. Uh, whenever I go anywhere, I always try to drink local. Um, it's for me. I mean, it, it's all also about trying to taste local beers that perhaps I've never had before as well. But it's all about also helping the localities as well. If you're going somewhere local, you don't want to be drinking something that you can get anywhere else. You know, in, in all all pubs all around all around the country. Um, so for me, it's all about making sure that I'm drinking something that's that's you know fairly local from there mm. okay well i'm just about to uh to put the last finishing touches to this hannah i've very much enjoyed it definitely excellent good uh, obviously we've talked about three ingredients so we'll 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 close the the loop in that sense and uh, touch on the hops as well because of course water the yeast and the malt is very important but the hops do their job too yeah you, you, you say that you get 96% of the hops that you use are grown in Kent. That statistic is now out of date. Slightly out of date, okay. <laughs> and should probably be updated. Um, obviously, with the growth of the Hell's Bells and the Bohemian Rhapsody, where we are using hops from uh, you know, the countries of that style of beer. Um, yeah. So we're using Hallertau tradition from the Hallertau Valley in uh, in Germany for the Hell's Bells, and we use the Chatets uh, from the Czech Republic in the Bohemian Rhapsody, because again, we want to be true to the style of the beer. Uh, but we do use a lot of Kent hops. We don't use any 
English hops from anywhere else other than West Kent. So uh, our friends over in East Kent, particularly Eddie Gadd down at Ramsgate Brewery, who's a really good friend of mine, they will make uh, beers down in East Kent with East Kent Goldings. And that's absolutely fantastic. But we don't use East Kent Goldings. We use West Kent Goldings. And I'm not saying that they're better. They're just right for our beer. And um, we do produce some epically hoppy beers using English hops. And so in 2012, one of the beers that we wanted to produce was a beer to celebrate the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. So we produced a beer called Jubilation Ale. And in that beer, I asked uh, Dr. Peter Darby, who I've mentioned before, um, he's affectionately known as the hop father because he, he breeds new hop varieties here in Kent. Uh, uh, down at China Farm, they have the, uh, the sort of national hop collection where they keep lots of different varieties of new hops that they are testing for uh, pest resistance, wilt, and all the various other things that uh, impact hops. And um, he's an absolutely superb guy that's just done some fantastic work. We work very closely with Peter. So in 2012, um, with the Diamond Jubilee coming around, we approached him and said, look, you know, is there one hop from every decade that our queen has been alive. So from the 1920s through to the 2010s, yeah. that has been bred in Kent and is still grown in Kent. Okay. And so we nailed it down with him. We went through and he said, well, this hop was released in, in uh, the 1910s and we worked through all the decades and we sourced these hops. And interestingly, six of these uh, nine hops, or five, should I say correctly, have been grown at the Finchcox and Scotney uh, Castle Hop Garden in Kent. This is the National Trust's own hop garden in Kent. And this is where we probably buy 70% of all of our hops from this one hop grower called Ian Strang, who's now a very close friend of mine. And uh, we worked very closely with Ian on various different types of hops. Mm. He was also growing an experimental variety, which um, is codenamed number one, but we've also given it the name Spirit of Kent. And we make the only beer in the United Kingdom that uh, uses this particular hop variety. And then we sourced three very recently grown hops. So First Gold, Sovereign, and Sovereign was released um, for the Queen's uh, original Jubilee and then uh, Pilgrim. And those three hops we needed because they came out in decades in the Queen's reign. And so we get those from uh, Clive Edmed, who is another hop grower. I've, uh, I've met Clive on a number of occasions and we source those hops from him. So we're sourcing nine hops from two different hop gardens and they went into the Jubilation Ale. And it was hugely popular. Uh, we actually struggled to make enough of it. And we'd always had an idea that we wanted to produce a new pale ale a real clean straight pale ale which uh we you know you showcasing kentish hops mm. and um you may or may not know that uh in 1944 when there was the d-day landings um beer was taken from the black eagle brewery up to biggin hill which is about four and a half miles up the road from here Mm. to the air force base there and it was racked into the auxiliary fuel tanks of spitfires and flown out to the troops wow. on the 10th of june 1944 so that we could say not only had we um invaded france not only we pushed the germans back from the beaches but we brought our own beer <laughs> and um 
So we really want to commemorate that story. And the yeah, largest yeah. collection now of Spitfires in the UK is actually kept at Biggin Hill. And one of them mm. commemorates the lead plane of the, of the Kent Squadron. The people of Kent raised enough money during the Second World War to actually have their own squadron of aeroplanes. And they're all named after cities, after Rochester, there was the Maid of Kent, uh, Chatham. All the various major towns and cities of Kent had, uh, had a, uh, a plane named after them. And the lead plane was the Spirit of Kent. And so the aeroplane up at Biggin Hill that is kept there, it's a Mark 9 Spitfire, is called the Spirit of Kent. We worked closely with the people up at the Biggin Hill Heritage Hangar. And we decided that we would put nine hops, nine hop additions into a pale ale to commemorate this Mark 9 Spitfire that is kept up at Biggin Hill. And we called it Spirit of Kent. So this beer has got 81 hop additions. Wow. Every 10 minutes during the boil, we add nine different hops to the, uh, to the boil and we dry hop it. It's a completely epic beer to make. Uh, every time I make it, I, I think, who was the idiot who came up with this recipe? <laughs> 81 hop additions in this beer. I mean, it, uh, somebody in America came up with a thing called a hopinator, which uh, adds hops continuously to the boil. And basically that's what we're doing. Every 10 minutes, we open the copper and stick a bit more hops yeah. in. But you're doing it manually. And manually, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's very popular and we, uh, we supply a similar beer to Marks and Spencer's and it sells very well called Nine Hot Kent Pale Ale. Mm -hmm. And uh, within two years, that beer had become uh, year round our number one best-selling cast beer. It's our number two best-selling 500 ml bottle beer. And it's very hoppy. Mm. Um, it's quite bitter. It's got a whole range of different flavors that come from the nine different Kent hops we put in the beer. And it's a beer that we're really passionate about. And um, we're taking this whole story one step further because we've now taken those nine hops and we've distilled the hop oils from this. And we are about to produce our own gin using wow. nine hops that go into the spirit of Kent. So it will be the ultimate spirit of Kent. Wow. And we'll have our own gin made with our friends down the road at Anno Distillers, where we also made Kent's first ever whiskey. So we made the wash that went into a whiskey in 2015, and we released that whiskey last year. There's a few small number of bottles left available for it. So anybody who's a whiskey aficionado, please get in touch with Anno Distillers. They've got the last of the stock. <laughs> we've sold out what we've got here. And um, you can get Kent's first ever whiskey made at the Western Brewery and distilled by our friends at Anno Distillers in Marden in Kent. Fantastic. Well, uh, we've covered a lot about some great beers and we've drunk some fantastic beers as well. Um, so thank you so much for all of that. Um, I started a, uh, a new thing last week, well, last, last episode, um, and that was to ask the, the guest to pose a question to the next guest. Okay, so I'm going to be asking you as well in a moment to pose a, a question to the next guest in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but my guest two weeks ago was uh, Rob from uh, Weird Beard Brewery in okay. West London. Yep. Yeah, okay. they make some very uh, interesting beers. They make some pretty good beers as well. Absolutely. Yeah, some really good beers. Here is Rob asking his question. All right. So... What I want to ask the next um, brewery stroke, beer person stroke, whoever you may be, <laughs> is um, if you were to fight a rhino 
or a tiger only armed with a pen, which would you choose? Now, you need to bear in mind <laughs> that you might survive a rhino attack, but a rhino has thick skin. Right. And you might be sipping, you might be sipping your soup through a straw for the rest of your life, but it's not going to eat you, but it's going to be a hard fight, right? A tiger might less, it might be a, a you know, you might be able to, to, to inflict more kind of substantial wounds easier because it's got thinner skin, but this is going to eat you. It's going to, it's going to attack you and it's going to, right, that's my question. Oh, crikey. Well, this is actually quite interesting because um, when, when I was a teenager, I, um, I spent some time in Nepal um, on a travel scholarship. We were bird watching in Nepal and we went to the most famous place, which is closed now. It's called Tiger Tops. And it's where they have tigers and also one-horned rhinos. And one day we were out with a uh, tracker and we were doing bird, what we were bird watching in particular. And we unfortunately came across a rhino in the middle of the, uh, uh, the Terai in, in the southern part of Nepal. Finished up climbing a tree in order to get away from this rhino. <laughs> um, armed only with, a, with a, a pair of binoculars and a telescope. Um, Not a pen. <laughs> and then later on that evening, uh, we were actually watching tigers uh, with the same binoculars and uh, telescope. Um, and I remember I was watching this tiger and um, got this very quiet voice said to me, um, do you mind if I have a look through your telescope? And I said, no, of course not. So I stepped to one side and let this gentleman have a look down the telescope. and. Um, it was pitch black, so we couldn't see each other, and I couldn't see who he was. Uh, and we were watching this tiger for about 20 minutes, uh, feasting on a, on a goat that uh, had been uh, put there for its, uh, for its dinner. And as we walked back to the, uh, to the lodge afterwards, having watched this tiger, uh, this gentleman came up to me, put his hand on my shoulder and said, thank you very much for showing me uh, showing the tiger. He said, looking through a telescope was quite something. And uh, it was Bjorn Borg. Uh, okay. who was obviously the famous tennis player who was yeah. playing an exhibition match in Kathmandu at the time. So I've kind of seen rhinos and I've seen tigers. and I'm not sure which of them yeah. I would want to fight. Um, mm. Rhinos are fairly stupid. Um, once we got up the tree, it couldn't see us because they're, they're their eyesight's not very good. Um, but its ears kept on rotating round like this, as it could hear. We were having to be very quiet. Anyway, it sort of sauntered off. Um, we did once come across a, a tiger uh, over the three-week period we were there, and it growled at us as we walked past it. And we were probably about 20 feet away. So I've been pretty close to these um, animals. Um, so I would say, actually, the only thing I would want to do with the pen is, is sketch a picture <laughs> of the rhino or sketch a picture of the... Um, uh, the tiger. The only thing I'd ever want to shoot would be a photograph of the tiger. I think they're the most beautiful creatures. Um, I think rhinos are amazing. Uh, the the one-horned rhinos you get in, 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 in the Indian subcontinent are beautiful. We mm. need to preserve these creatures. They're things Absolutely. of great beauty. Yeah. Um, so I don't anticipate either being eaten by a tiger or a, 
or, or, or a rhino. I'll climb a tree and I'll, I'll, I'll just sketch a picture with the pen. Excellent. A much, a much better use of the pen than, than Rob was suggesting, I think. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to run, run it through with a pen. Yeah. What is it they say? The pen is mightier than the sword. It is. Absolutely. So well, that, that, would, that would be my answer. A very convoluted it. way to Rob and his <laughs> very strange question about what, uh, yeah. what I would do. Absolutely. Well, that, that's a, I really want to know what the hell you were drinking last yeah. time around that produced well, a question like that. There, were, there was a 7.5% mango IPA, Dead by Dawn. It was a cherry stout, uh, but it was, I think, about 5%. And then the Armour stout was uh, 8 or 9%, I think. So, okay. yeah, we'd had a few. We'd had a few. And they were quite strong. So, okay, brilliant. Thanks, thanks very much for answering that question. Excellent answer, by the way. Very good. Um, so, of course, now it's your turn. I have a guest in two weeks' time. As I said with Rob, I know who the guest is in two weeks' time, but I'm not going to say. Can I ask if they're a brewer or not? Uh, I will give you that. Yes, they are a brewer. Okay. So my question will be very simple. Um, do you use English hops? And if you do, do you love English hops? And if you don't, why don't you use English hops? Okay, fantastic. Well, I will ask that question to the next guest in a couple of weeks time. We've reached the end of the podcast, Robert. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and thanks for the beers. They were awesome. Thank you. Really, Thank really you. enjoyed them. Um, and uh, looking forward to getting down to the, the tap room. Uh, I'm. I'm not far. I'm, uh, I think, about 25 minutes drive when there's no traffic from the, from the tap room. And I've been a few yeah. times. I really enjoy it. You, you're doing a great job at the moment, especially through COVID, with uh, making sure it's a, a nice, um, safe and welcoming environment. I, I've well, been... as you can hear in the background here, that kind of buzzing noise yes. is <laughs> our machine where our beer orders come in. So we use the same right. app that they use at BrewDog. Um, okay. We're big fans of Brewdog. We love Brewdog. We love everything they do. Yeah, they can be a bit irreverent. And sometimes yeah. I, you know, as a slightly old fart, <laughs> I think that some of their marketing just might just push the boundaries a bit too far. But I've been up to visit them there. I've been up to Ellen. We nearly used the same architect as they used to build the brewery here. Um, I think what they have done for craft beer is absolutely spectacular. Um, yeah. you know, yes, it's quite mainstream what they're doing now but I, I i'm not i'm not a hater i'm not somebody who does who does them down i quite regularly will go on their website and i'll um pick up uh you know a dozen different beers from them and i really enjoy what i'm drinking there um you know i'm a lot older than <laughs> than a lot of the people here who work here uh now and I, you know we've got to stay relevant we've got to stay interesting yeah. we've got to stay exciting and i think you know martin dickey worked at uh, Dark Star, when they were a really interesting brewery. Mark Tranter from Dark Star is a really good friend of mine. You know, these are guys who've really cut their teeth in small brewers. And then kind of back to the beginning of the conversation we had about small brewers. Really, they cut their teeth on small brewers. Really. They've actually, Brewdog have come out and supported small brewers. Really, yeah. And said it's really, really important. It's what got them started. Yeah. I, I have a holiday place in, in Aberdeenshire. And when I'm up there, I look up you know, brew dog beers and I drink them every day when I'm on holiday up in Aberdeenshire and I've visited the brewery. You know, they're great what they're doing. Yeah. We, we really need to be relevant in terms of what we do in the beers that we make and 
and the conversations we have. And I'm, and, and I'm, I'm really a big supporter of what BrewDog are doing. No, absolutely. So, I, I, no, I would say, you know, keep supporting these people. If, if they can grow their business to a yeah. big size on the back of what they're doing, I think that's absolutely fantastic. Sure. But again, I, my challenge to BrewDog would be use more English hops. You've just got to learn how to use them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks very much for your time. And uh, thank you, Paul. I'd say I look forward to coming down to the, the tap room on a regular basis. Uh, yeah, the, the times that I've been during COVID, uh, I think I've been twice, yeah, three times, I think, during COVID, and I've always felt extremely safe. Um, you're doing everything that you can to make sure that the experience is as seamless and contactless as possible. And uh, it's, it's a great place. And obviously, you know, when, when all this is over, and there is no problem about you know packing into rooms again. Uh, I know you've got the space there to to um, to do a lot of good things. So, well, the long-term plan is to triple triple the size of the tap room uh, to expand the space that we can have people come in yeah. because it's clearly what people want. Uh, you know, nine out of ten of our customers come from within the M25. They come from the other side of the M25. We're only 250 meters from the M25, yeah. and um, we want people to come out and come to the Garden of England and enjoy great beer that's what it's all about yeah well absolutely i mean you know if they come to you they certainly will be able to enjoy great beer so fantastic thank excellent. you very much no worries thank you paul cheers then cheers bye well i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did robert is very invested in the finer details of the brewing protests and the perfect ingredients as you'll probably remember melissa cole saying back in episode four when we were discussing their collaboration beer october west that robert is very much a details guy the beers we had were great too. And that leads me on to the top five. Although I've made it top 10 for this episode. I've had so many great beers over the last couple of weeks that more than five deserved a mention. So here goes. Top 10. At number 10, Weirdbeard, Mariana Trench. Fantastic pale from Weirdbeard, classic core range beer that you just can't get enough of. At number nine, Yeasty Boys Love Bomb. 7% hazy pale, great orange and tropical fruits coming through and the perfect balance. Top drinkability as it tastes at least one to one and a half percent below its actual ABV. At number eight, Westerham Hop Rocket. An absolute hot bomb, 4.3% session IPA, West Coast style, clean and crisp citrus and piney flavors and aromas coming through, coming from a plethora of US hops. Apollo, Chinook, Columbus, Centennial, Comet, Amarilla, Simcoe, and Citra. And number seven, Northern Monks OFS014 Matcha Ice Cream Lager. Creamy with a zing of citrus, kind of lemon lime, which comes from the matcha. A touch of vanilla too. Sabro hop is used, but it's not as punchy as I've had it in other beers. And number six, Duration Bet the Farm. 4.5% Continental Pale. It's crisp, clean, hoppy, floral, and fruity. And number five, Yeasty Boys Cuddle Party. This is a 6.4% beer listed as a nourishing ale. I've never had a beer with that style name before. And as the can listed chocolate, caramel, and nutty as characteristics, I expected a stout. However, it was a brand ale, and I really enjoyed it. It's a beautiful, rich, complex character. At number four, Western Brewery, Hannah Pilsner. 7.5% Imperial Pilsner. 
a little darker than the standard Pilsner, but still nice and clear. Malty, bitter flavor, and there's a warm, boozy finish. It's very, very Moorish, as you heard on the podcast. And number three, Daya, Dust My Broom. 5.8% Pale Ale, using Citra and Simcoe hops. It's smooth, hoppy, citrus, and pine, with the edge of biscuity malt. I had a half of this last Friday in Hopstop in Rygate, and I enjoyed it so much that I took a litre home, and then drank that litre in the same night. At number two, Northern Monk, Holidays in the Sun. This is another of Northern Monk's patron project beers, and to be honest, they can't seem to get anything wrong, thankfully. It's a beautiful 8.7% double dry hopped dipper. Such a wonderful beer. I wish I had more of them, but unfortunately, it was my only one. And at number one, Brew York Espresso Patronum. This was originally brewed in collaboration with um, Amundsen. I couldn't imagine two better breweries to work together on a Monster Stout. Both are absolute masters at that style. Um, And this doesn't disappoint. It's a massive 12% ABV with gorgeous notes of vanilla, coffee, and chocolate coming through. None is overpowering the other, but all are delivering their own sublime punch. With this one, I do have two more left. So really, really looking forward to drinking those two. So that's all for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please let me know your comments, either good or bad. Always happy for feedback. Constructive though, please. Subscribe so that you can get notifications of new episodes and also follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on at UK on both of those. I'm very excited to announce that in two weeks' time, my guest will be Jager Wise, head brewer at East London's Wildcard Brewery and star of Channel 5's The Wine Show. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.